two family time announcements. I told Jamie, I said, don't start my sermon timer yet because I got something to preach this morning, but I wanted to share two updates, family time updates with you. The first one is this. Uh, for any of you like myself from a Jewish background, Rosh Hashanah is right around the corner. So happy Rosh Hashanah to you. Yom Tov, it's coming up tomorrow night. It's ahead of the new year. There we go. I see some of y'all nodding at me. So representing my Hebrew brothers and sisters from another mother, but the same father. In heaven, you know, you know what I'm talking about. There we go. Uh, so it is uh, exciting. It's a feast of trumpets. If you're not quite sure what that's all about, it's pretty cool. Jesus celebrated it, so probably a good thing to look into. As my father, the late Rabbi Neil, would always say, they are the feasts of the Lord, not the Jewish holidays. In the Bible, they're called the feasts of the Lord. He said, God's throwing a party, and everybody's invited. He didn't say everybody. I said everybody. But So I'd encourage you to check that out. Um, secondly, church, you guys are incredible. You guys are absolutely incredible. Yeah, you can give a hand for yourself. You don't even know why I'm saying it, but it feels good to clap, right? I, I shared with, with all of you, with, with the church family last week about my mom as a breast cancer survivor dealing with what, what looks to be another um, diagnosis of breast cancer, which indeed it is. And, and I just got to say, you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor. I didn't endeavor to be a pastor. This was not my career ambition. Jesus kind of took my life and said, here's what you're going to do. And I'm like, who, who are you? T- oh, me? Oh, okay. That's what I'll do. And so... We've all heard the nightmares of what churches can be like and what they can do to people, and yet this week has been an absolute joy to be a part of the church. I mean, there, there is nothing like the church when it's working right. All the texts and phone calls to myself, to my mom, all of the support, like we felt every bit of it. I mean, it, it's, the, it's the call. It's our call, right? We, we Widows and orphans is kind of our thing, and and so to, to watch my mom, who's a, a recent widow, be loved on the way that she has, like there's nothing like the church when it's working right. And you guys are amazing. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I, I shot out to, to Houston to be with my mom this past Sunday right after service. And so we, we are dealing with breast cancer. The prognosis is good. Um, so pray. We're starting some treatments now. We go back for 12 weeks and really praying and believing Jesus for an excellent report when we get up there that the doctors would be baffled at the supernatural way that her body is responding. And um, yeah, so that's how we're praying. So thank you guys. Please continue to pray. But seriously, from the bottom of my heart, like you guys are, this church is something special, man. If I wasn't the pastor, I'd just go here. You guys are amazing. Hey, stand with me to your feet. Now you can start my timer, Jamie. We're in this new series called Silent Killers. Everybody say Silent Killers. Ooh. We've heard this term in healthcare. We're talking diabetes and we're talking hypertension and and we're talking cholesterol. but, But this series is about the silent killers of the soul. The silent killers of the spirit. See, as human beings, we are so much more than, than these unidimensional corporeal bodies. We're, we're mind, body, soul, and spirit. And so last week, we talked about the silent killer of anxiety. If you've wrestled with, battled with, felt maybe stuck in anxiety in this season, in the room, online, I would highly encourage you, if you're online, to press pause right now, jump back. If you're in the room, you can check it out on our YouTube or our podcast. We talk through very practical steps biblically to walk in increasing freedom and peace from anxiety. This week, I want to talk about maybe the most uncontested silent killer that we will face in our world. So flip to Luke chapter 12. 
Luke chapter 12, if you have a Bible, these are going to be the words of Jesus. College football has indeed started. I know some of you are wondering, and you count on me to give you the update. It doesn't really matter. I only care about spiritual things. Um, but the Florida Gators did win. They did win their game. So go Gators. Sorry, FAU. The Miami Hurricanes were unfortunately defeated by Nick Satan. I'm sorry, Saban. Freudian slip there. All the Dolphin fans, we always do that. It's so weird. Um, but they, they, they lost. I was rooting for you, Canes. And the Florida State Seminoles, I think they play a middle school team sometime later today or something. I'm not quite sure. It doesn't matter. Someone's like, low blow. I'm sorry, Kayla. Luke 12, if you're ready, say, preach, preacher. Here we go. Someone in the crowd said to him, him being Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, I got to give you the context here because this is quite comical. Jesus is Jesus, like he's the dude, he's the rabbi, he's the teacher, and, and he's going around and he's healing people and he's doing miracles. And, and it says here at the beginning of this passage that there are th thousands, multiple thousands of people that have gathered to hear him pontificate. And so Jesus is communicating, thousands of people are around, he's speaking to his disciples with thousands of onlookers, and in the midst of a sermon by the Son of God about eternal things and not getting stuck in the trappings of this life, this buddy jumps in with, Jesus, tell, the, tell my brother to invite the inheritance with me. You ever been in a room where like everyone's talking about something and then someone comes out of left field and you're like, are you even on the same planet? Anybody ever been there before? That's our brother right here. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, I like that from Jesus. It's kind of fun. Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out. Everybody say, watch out. Jesus said, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Like, greed? How, how, we'll get into it. He said, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. I need to remind you that life does not consist. Consist? That's not a word. It does not consist out of an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. He said, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Everybody say first world problems, right? He's like, oh no, I have too much stuff. What do I do? What a problem. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'm gonna tear down my barns. I'm gonna build bigger ones. And then I'll store my surplus grain. And I will say to myself, self, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Take life easy, drink, be merry, chill. You earned it. But God said to him, you fool. That is not what I want to hear from God, by the way. If you don't either, you might want to put the listening ears on and pay attention. That's from kids' church. I don't know why. Everybody goes, that's your listening ear sound, apparently. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself. And this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Pray with me. Jesus, help us out and set us free from greed. Amen? You can find your seat, turn to a neighbor and tell them, zoop. Those listening ears on. 
You ever got something you've been wanting only to find out that it was not what you thought it would be? You ever had your hopes up for something? My wife and I have two children. Our oldest is going to kindergarten, and so this week I was feeling a little nostalgic in my feelings, and I went through the pictures of our boy Liam when he was a little baby. How cute, right? Oh, thank God for those genetics from mom. And um, so that's Liam when he was a little boy, and I remember us dreaming about the day that he would start walking. We're like, man, the parents already know. We're like, man, it's going to be so great. And he starts crawling. And we got a little sense that it maybe wasn't going to be everything we thought it would be because all of a sudden stuff's bumping and, and, and there's terror everywhere. We're like, man, someday he's going to start walking. Man, it's going to be so great. It's going to be so fun. I'm like, I could play tag. We could throw the football around. We could play sport. It's going to be amazing. And then he started walking. And they don't tell you in the manual that the kids come with um, that children, when they begin walking, are not very good at walking. And so it's more like stumbling around, and, and they look like these little drunk miniature people, and, and they're falling around everything. And you thought your home was baby-proof until your kid starts walking, and you realize all the sharp corners that you never noticed before, that they find unique ways to hit all the time. And I remember sitting with my wife, and we were like, why, why did we want this so bad? Parents, can I get an amen? Any parents relating with me right now? You're like, man, this is way more work than I thought it would be. And it was great, and it's amazing, and I love watching Liam run around the place, but goodness gracious, when he was sedentary, life was much simpler. And I started thinking about that week because it's not, this week, because it's not simply with kids and walking, it's really with, with life. The moral of the story is we often find ourselves surprised when the thing that we crave turned out to be much more tricky, much more challenging, well, much more dangerous than we imagined it to be. And this is what the Bible has to say about money. This is what the Bible has to say about riches. This is what the Bible has to say about wealth. We just read it here. Jesus said, watch out. Watch out. Be on guard. Paul says in 1 Timothy, he says, the love of money, it's what? It's the root of all evil, of all kinds of evil. But, but there's a problem. Because while the Bible espouses a very clear and particular narrative about riches and wealth, our culture has a mantra that we sing out resoundingly that is very different and loudly preached in our world. Let me give it to you from some of the modern day psalmists. Culture says things like, money, 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 money. Money, thank you very much, you brought it to me. Culture says things like cash rules everything around me. Culture says things like it's all about the Benjamins. Culture says things more recently like, I, we screaming out, I wanna be a millionaire. So flipping bad, you thought, I'm not gonna cuss in church. So bad, the great sage, notorious B.I.G., tried to warn us that mo' money brings mo' problems. And we said, Biggie, we're good with that. Bring on the problems. We're okay with that. If you were to dare ask the question, it would almost be seen as a joke. You know, I wonder how much money I should make. Coach would say, are you kidding me? What a stupid question. You make as much bread as you can. And yet, and I need you listening to me on this one, because this is the silent killer of all silent killers. 
Because while in our culture, greed is applauded, the reality is that greed is an especially potent silent killer because where we see it as a virtue, it is overwhelmingly seen in scripture as a dangerous potential vice. And yet we applaud greed often as a value. Scripture warns us over and over again of the corrupting power of greed. We've all got a story that pops into our head right now, and it's always somebody else, right? It's always someone else's struggle with greed. But we've all got a story of a way that money and stuff and possessions and greed ripped something or someone or someone's apart. And we've got to talk it through because if there's a silent killer in our culture that goes uncontested, it's this one. It's this one. I considered titling this sermon, Greed, the Silent but Deadly Killer. But then I thought that might be a weird title, so then I said it instead. All right, core idea, and then we'll jump into the thoughts here. here here's my big idea. If you're taking notes, jot this one down. Greed is deceptively dangerous. Greed is deceptively dangerous. Three stopping points here that I want to highlight in the passage, and then I'm hoping we can respond in faith together. Stopping point number one is this, greed creates conflict in our relationships. Greed creates conflict in our relationships. Turn to a neighbor and say conflict, conflict. It creates some conflict in our relationships. Start up again in verse 13. This man jumps up and says to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replies, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter? Then he says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Let's get us on the same page here. Greed is defined by a selfish and excessive desire for more. An excessive and, and selfish desire for more of something, money, wealth, possessions, than what is needed. It's a selfish and excessive desire for more. Which begs the question, how in the world does greed apply in this story? Right? You ever, I know we all like, oh, yeah, yeah, like it makes sense. But you read this, you're like, I, what, huh? Maybe God's not paying attention, but why greed? Okay, so remember, this is, this is ancient world. This is ancient Jewish world, in fact. And so there were some cultural realities that, that help us get context for the story. As I went through and looked at different commentaries and, and Bible scholars, there's really two explanations for what's happening in this strange interruption by this man. The first one is that this man is suffering as a result of his older brother doing a thing that did happen in the ancient Jewish world. The, thought, the first thought is that his brother was, was, was called a Ben Hamesson. Uh, ben Hamesson, a son of violence. The thought here would be that this is a younger brother uh, sort of waiting in the crowd to get Jesus to sort of do his thing. And, and the thought would be that his older brother has forcibly taken the inheritance from their father and he snatched it away. He, is, he has done something wrong. He has done something illegal. He has done something contrary to Torah, contrary to God's word. That's one school of thought. This isn't the main school of thought, though, because Jesus' response would make that sort of awkward. Jesus doesn't respond to this, young, to this man and say, man, that's wrong. Jesus made clear stances against injustice and oppression, and he does not do that here. What does he do? Well, here he actually rails against the man interjecting. He goes in to talk about greed. Here's the second thought, and this is where most Bible scholars land. The second thought 
is that what this man was doing is he was attempting to utilize Jesus and his authority to manipulate his brother into doing something beyond what was actually his allocated portion in life. Let me explain what I mean. In in Jewish culture, what was customary is that the firstborn son would receive a double portion of the inheritance. Where most Bible scholars go is they believe based off of Jesus' response, which is immediately about greed, that what this man was doing is trying to manipulate Jesus for his own selfish gain. Go figure, I've never seen churches do that before, ever when it comes to money and greed. I can't imagine what's happening here. They're saying what's probably happened is the older brother got his biblically right two-third portion, and he's now, the younger brother is now stepping up and trying to get Jesus to say, Jesus, tell him to split it 50-50. Maybe this guy is already a follower of Jesus, and he's hoping he could piggyback on Jesus's authority for his desire for more. And most scholars suspect this is what's actually happening because of Jesus's immediate response and warning against greed. But the problem is deeper than that. You see, because in the ancient world and in Jewish culture, the inheritance was not given out at any random time. The inheritance was given out after the father had died, which means what? Which means this family is most likely in mourning, which means that most likely in a moment of grief where these families should be binding together, where this brother should be coming together and, 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 and connecting, and, and in the midst of grief, there should be a connection and unity. Greed is relationally ripping them apart in public in front of their thousands and thousands of closest friends. Does it make a little bit more sense now why Jesus immediately jumps on the opportunity to warn against the destructive power of greed? You guys track them with me? Jesus is communicating to something that's deep. See, greed creates conflict in our relationships. Greed creates conflict in our relationships. Greed convinces us, actually, that it's worth it, that it's worth the cost, vale la pena, that it's, that it's worth whatever cost is gonna come with it. A little Spanglish up in there, one time, Nancy. Greed gets us to buy into horrible, horrible value propositions that if we were to actually step back from the emotions of greed that's running our minds and hearts and look at it, we're like, wait a second, this is a bad deal. Why would I ever do this? That is what greed does. I mean, I don't have to tell you, think about it. Take a moment. Think about how many times you've seen greed for money, greed for stuff, greed for status, split up friendships and break up marriages and tear up companies and rip apart churches. Because this is what greed does. If if we're not careful, greed takes this opportunity to swap a necessary thing, which is money, right? Roof over our head, providing for our family, amen to all of that. It takes a necessary thing and swaps it out for the most important things, namely relationship with God and people. This is what greed does. It it gets our values all off kilt. It it gets us to swap out a necessary thing, money and provision for the most important things, relationship with God and people. Greed gets us to forget what matters most. And as a result, we do crazy and tragically crazy things. We find ourselves in spots where we're about to lose 
our family. Our family is fraying. Our time is frayed on both ends, and yet we're still working those extra hours. We're about to lose our marriage, and, and we keep neglecting our spouses. We're chasing after that big bonus. We're about to run our life into the ground and lose our health at age 57 and die at an unripe age and not even get to use all of the stuff that we slave for. And your family loses you in the process. See, greed is deceptively dangerous. And if left unchecked, it changes us and it destroys us from the inside out. Point number one, Jesus warns, not because he is needy for funds. How many of you know Jesus is pretty good in his bank account in heaven? Y'all know that? Like, Jesus doesn't need your money. Jesus loves you and he wants your heart and he wants you to thrive. Jesus warns this man and he warns us today as his disciples that greed is deceptively dangerous. It creates a conflict in our relationships, number two, and it creates a false sense of security. Greed creates a false sense of security. Look at this parable that Jesus told here in the passage. Verse 18, then Jesus said about this man, the man's thinking to himself, well, this is what I'll do. I'll, I'll tear down my barns and, and I'll build bigger ones and there I'll, I'll store up my surplus and my grain and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Man, greed is sneaky. And we're, we're humans, right? I know y'all are super spiritual, but, but we're all human beings. We're all susceptible to it. Greed convinces us that if we just had a little bit more, we'd be okay. It, it's so wild to me. All the time when people are polled in social surveys and, and they're asked about, I, I read this thing in the Palm Beach Post, and it was asking people where they felt about their lives. It said, man, how much money do you feel like you need to be secure, to be happy, to be in a good place? You know what everyone responded? A little bit more than they had. Everything from people who are, who are living down under the poverty line to, to six figures to, to millionaires, everybody felt the same thing. I'm like, that's crazy. No, that's called the devil. Everybody said, man, if I just had a little bit more, then I'd be happy. Then I'd be safe. Then I could be at peace. Then I would be secure. Greed convinces us that if we just had a little bit more, we'd be happy. Things would be okay. My family would be good. Everything would be fine. All my relational conflicts would go away because that works, right? But this is what greed tries to, tries to convince us about. Greed plays to the reality of our human condition. In Proverbs, it says that the eyes of a man, that the eyes of a person are never satisfied. This is what God tells us about ourselves. This is what Solomon, the wisest man to walk the planet outside of Jesus the Christ, this is what Solomon said. He said, man, I got all this stuff and, and it was never enough. Why? Because it's one of our, our deficiencies in our frame, the eyes of a man, if left to our own devices, are never satisfied. See, greed is this especially potent, silent killer because it convinces you that it's helping you making sure you're provided for, making sure your family's provided for, making sure that everyone has what they need. It convinces you that it's helping you when in reality it is haunting and harming you all throughout your life. And we all feel it. I remember this was a, a few years ago when I was having a conversation with a guy in, in our microchurch. My wife and I lead a microchurch, these smaller discipleship groups. And, 
And so we were having a conversation, and, and this guy was amazing, great heart for Jesus, and, and he had gotten married, and, and marriage was going great, and, and then he got this, like, drive, right? He didn't, didn't grow up in a family that necessarily was the best provided for, and so he's like, man, I got it. And so he got that it started as a really good desire. Man, I want to provide for my family. I want to provide for my wife. I don't want my family to have to struggle the way that I used to. And so, he's, and so he started working. He's working. He, he gets to 40 hours, and then 45 hours, and then 50 hours, and then 55 hours. You know how it goes. And then 60 hours, and 65, and he keeps going. And going and going, and he's like, and he's burning the candle at both ends, and he's a shell of who he used to be, and his marriage is starting to experience friction. And finally, I'm like, bro, man, it just seems like you're overworking to be rich. He's like, exactly, exactly, yes, that's what I'm doing, you know, because that's what our prophets in our culture preach. You got to grind, you got to hustle, man. You got to get out there, you got to make it happen. He's like, exactly. I was like, oh, I, I, I thought so. I hoped it wasn't, but I, I thought so. I said, you know, there's a Bible verse about that. He's like, what do you mean? I'll read it to you. This is what I told uh, I read it to him. Proverbs 23. Doop. It says, do not, what does it say? To be rich. I'm just going to have us read that again. That's the Bible. Do not overwork to be rich. Because of your own understanding. You're like, well, that doesn't make sense to me. God's got you covered. Because of your own understanding, cease. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. Fly like an eagle. Couldn't help myself. This is a Bible verse. We don't hear it in America because we don't like this Bible verse. This is a Bible verse. Why is God saying it? Because he loves you, right? That's why he tells us things, because he loves you. By the way, as we get more in-depth knowledge of our brains and how we're wired and how we're working, we are finding out empirically and scientifically that overworking to be rich is literally futile. I was reading a study from Entrepreneur Magazine. They were talking about different work weeks and what they figured out. And they're like, you know, the, for a long time, we've sort of pushed against the 40 hour or so work week. And they're like, man, you know, because most people do more now and they'll do 50 and 60 and whatever. They're like, well, what we've actually find, found is that the, the ultimate sort of sweet spot for high level work is about 40 to 45 hours a week. Go figure. They said, once you hit 50, this, this is like science stuff. I, don't, I geek out on this stuff. They said, once you hit 50 hours, your quality starts diminishing significantly. They said, once you hit 55 and above, you might as well not even work because the quality of what you're doing is so poor, you would do it better to just wait next week and do it when you're fresh. Who thought of that? God. Right? All this, we think we're so cutting edge in our science. Like, whoa, and we all freak out because like, oh my gosh, I'm a Bible person. I don't know about science. Like, all science is going to do is figure out what God's been saying for thousands of years because he's smart. Yeah. Mark 4, Jesus warns like this. He says it like this. He says, now these, he's speaking of, a, he's, this is the parable of the sower. Some of you might be familiar with it. Talking about how people respond to God's word or used as a seed. As the analogy here. Now, these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world. Say it with me. And the, and the, ah, the deceitfulness of riches. The deceitfulness of riches. The desire for all these things, they choke out the word and what God's trying to do and it becomes unfruitful. See, greed is deceptively dangerous. 
For so many of us, maybe we were in a place, we grew up in a family, we grew up in a family background where things were not managed well financially, and so we watched struggle, and we watched uh, a mismanagement of resources. Maybe we watched laziness, and so out of a good place and a good ambition, we start with a good goal, but greed and wealth is deceitful. It's sneaky, 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 sneaky. Wealth and riches, they are a phenomenal tool but a merciless master. And Jesus, out of love for this man who was not paying any attention to Jesus' sermon, keys right in on what he needs to hear. Number one, greed creates conflict. Number two, greed creates a false sense of security. And finally, number three, greed ensnares us to the now. Greed ensnares us to the now. If you're anything like me, and, and maybe you're, you're a type A in the room, and you've got your vision board, and you've got your dreams, and you've got your goals, you're like, well, what do I do with this desire for advancement? What do I do with this desire for forward momentum? What do I do with this desire to progress? Pastor John, God has wired me in this way. You are right. We were created to move forward. We were created to advance in wealth. We were created to move in a forward-facing direction, just not in the way greed makes us think. Look in Luke 12. God responds to to this man. He says, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves. What does it say? But is not rich toward God. I titled the sermon, God wants you rich toward him. The vision for Jesus, to be clear, is not poverty. The vision for Jesus is riches toward God. Maybe that involves some degree. Man, I pray to God. We get some, we get some college students in here be, who become millionaires and go and make a difference for Jesus. And remember your local church. You can tie it back and we'll, make it, we'll be good stewards. We'll make a difference. I pray to God. I pray to God. God blesses you as much as your character can handle. Right? I'm like, Jesus, that's where I want to be. I've literally prayed. I'm like, come on, IG. I'm like, Jesus, Let Greenhouse have as much influence and as many people as you know we and I can handle and no more. That's, that's, I just want to be faithful, Lord. I I don't, I really, at this point, I'm like, I really don't care. I just want to be faithful. See, greed ensnares us to the now. Matthew Henry in his commentary said it like this. He said, this man's folly is made most evident when he dies. For then it's clear that he took pains to lay up treasure in a world he was hastening from, but took no care to lay it up in the world he was headed to. Here's what greed does. It gets us focused on the wrong riches. It gets us focused on the wrong path. It gets us focused on the wrong advancement. It distracts us from the things that matter most, from eternal things. First Timothy said it like this in First Timothy 6. Paul's writing to Timothy. He says, I want you to command those who are rich. I didn't say that. He said that. You're like, Pastor John, thank God. You command the rich. Okay, if you live in America, by the way, chances are if you have food every single day, if you have a roof over your head, and, and if you are right now in this room and you have shelter and clothing, you are considered rich globally. Did you know this? How many rich people do I have in the room? 
Any rich people? All right, one time, look at that. He came to church, you're like, now I feel good, Pastor John. I haven't felt good this whole sermon, but now I feel good. You told me I'm rich. Okay, you are rich. So I'm gonna command those who are rich in this present world, all of us, to not be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Do you notice a theme here about wealth? But to put their hope in God, who richly provides for us everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. I love this. So that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. That'll preach. That'll preach. So that day, why is God telling me all this stuff? Man, God, you're messing with my dream. You're messing with my plan. No, he's trying to help you take hold of the life that is truly life. I, I know you've got in your mind. Yeah, that's good. I know you've got in your minds. You're like, I want to live my best life. You don't, to be, to be fair and with all due respect, you don't know what your best life looks like. So ask him. So ask him. Lord, I, I know my auntie said that, and I know that, that that TikTok person said that, and I know that I know my friends and my, my 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 buddies from college said, but Lord, you know life that Jesus came to give us what? Life and life abundantly, the life that's truly life. Jesus, what do I need to be fixing my life on? It's a great question. It's a great question. The uncertain hope of wealth, the life that's truly life. We've all seen people drift. We've probably even felt it. People drift from their purpose. You start doing something for the passion, for the zeal of it, and all of a sudden you just get into the paycheck, and you're like, Man, what in the world happened? I didn't get into this for the money. You've been there before? You're like, where did something change? I got into this for the love of it. I got into this for the passion. I got into this because I cared about the mission, and now all of a sudden I'm just caring about the paycheck. What happened? The deceitfulness of riches. Here's the application. This is what I want us to do. I am praying that we would be a church community that constructs guardrails against greed. That constructs guardrails against greed. Jesus said in Luke 12, he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. See, greed is deceptively dangerous, which is why we need to create guardrails. I got a picture up here of some guardrails. Let me see the guardrail picture. There it is. Boom. You guys familiar with this? You're driving on a road. Now, imagine you're driving on a mountain road. I know we only have Trash Mountain here in South Florida. If you're online, maybe you have other mountains not made of refuse. Um, but, but imagine you're driving on an actual mountain, right? And you're on, that was a whew, splash zone. And you're on an actual mountain, and, and, and you're driving along. Now, how many of you think you would be very careful when you're driving on a windy mountain road? How many of you? How many think you take great care, great concern? You would not be texting while driving, right? You would not be hands-free. Like, I don't have a Tesla, but maybe my car does self-driving, right? You would not do that when you're on a windy mountain road. And so it would be safe to assume, well, I'm going to, Pastor John, I mean, I don't need those. I'm going to pay so much attention, Pastor John. I don't need the guardrails. Here's the problem. If you wait, to construct guardrails until you are driving off the mountain, you are too late. I'm gonna say that one again, because that'll preach. If you wait to construct guardrails, Pastor John, I, I, I'm good, I, I hear you, amen, you preach it to the rest of them, but Pastor John, I'm good against greed. Oh, really? I don't think Jesus would agree or the rest of the Bible would agree with that, but that's okay. You're like, Pastor John, I'm good. I don't need any guardrails. Man, I pray to God that you are right. But if you do, by the time you try to set them up, it's already too late. You construct guardrails in advance. I want us constructing guardrails against greed. If you are making money, 
If you have a consistent or semi-consistent income and paycheck, Jesus would say, watch out. Put up your guard. Put up some guardrails. Take heed. Be careful. Be warned. You're like, Pastor John, make it more practical. Okay, God's got you. God has provided an ancient remedy and beginning set of guardrails against greed for your soul. It is called the tithe. Like, oh, here we are. Pastors always preach about this. Okay, we hear crazy stuff about this. Let me break it down in the Hebraic Christian Jesus weird, you got a Jewish pastor, so let me hit all the things right now. The tithe is a biblical thing that happened way before Moses. It actually goes all the way back to the very beginning with Abraham and Melchizedek. So it was pre-Old Testament covenant. Moses comes along and codifies it in the Torah. Jesus comes along in Matthew 23 and reaffirms it. So if you're like, well, we're not under the law. I'm like, okay, amen. Jesus said we should do it. Should we, do we want to be disciples of Jesus? Maybe we should start there. But, but basically the idea here is that the first 10% in the ancient world, it would be your grain or, or your fruit and vegetables. Most of us don't get paid in fruit and vegetables, all right? So it's your cash money. The first 10% goes back to God. There, there we do it in the temple or synagogue. Here, you're gonna do it in your context in your local church body. The first 10%, it's not just about the amount. It's not just about the percentage. It's about the fact that it is the first 10%. Why? Because it's about faith. Because God is not strapped in heaven. He's like, please, I need your money, God. It's not about that. It's about faith. It's about our hearts because where our treasure is, there our heart is. Now, I get all sorts of pushback on this only from Americans. I don't know what to do with that, it's so weird. You go to any other country, they're like, oh yeah, amen. And I go to America, they're like, well, because we're so evolved as Americans, right? And so they're like, well, Pastor John, but the tithes was under the law. I'm like, you're gonna talk to a Jew about the law. Okay, let, let, me, let me hear this. They're like, the tithe that was under the law. And so, you know, and then now in Jesus, we're not, I'm like, oh, amen. They're like, we're under grace. I'm like, amen. And, and you know what? You're right, man. If the law commanded 10% as a generosity threshold, man, under grace, we could give 20. Ooh, we could give 40. Duh, duh. Where's I just left on the keys? We could give 60. We could give 80. I was like, oh man, you're right. We're under grace. We could give so much more. Because the abundant, amazing grace of God would surely not have us give less generosity than the law commanded, right? But we do. We do. The average American Christian gives 2.58% of their income back. That's stats. Either God's grace is not as amazing as we sing about, or greed has a much deeper hold than we would like to admit. And Jesus wants to set us free, because he loves us. Here's a very, very, very clear guardrail for greed. If you are not yet tithing, Start this week. Start this week. You're like, Pastor John, but how, how do I know that I'm going to be able to live off 90%? Exactly. Exactly. It's about faith. It, 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 by the way, it's a percentage. So it's equal across the board. It's the ultimate standard of equivalent generosity. No matter how rich or poor you are, you feel it the same because it's a percentage because God is smart and he's thought this thing through. Greed is defined as a selfish, excessive desire for more of something than what is needed. And I'm praying, church, that we would be disciples of Jesus, that instead of joining the rat race and instead of jumping in and scrapping for more, we would step back and ask God what it is for. 
I'm, I'm trying to live this. I'll, I'll be honest. I've shared with you guys from the pulpit before. My penchant when it comes to stuff and money is to save, not to give. If it's on a good day, I'm being frugal and fiscally responsible. And if it's on a bad day, I'm flat out being stingy and greedy. Thank God for my wife because she is extremely generous. And as a team, we've made some decisions when it comes to generosity. So this is how the Lash family does it. Greed is a desire for more than what is needed. When we sit down, if we get some sort of a raise, if we get some sort of an advancement in salary, if we get whatever the case might be, we'll sit down first and we'll say, okay, what is needed? You had a kid, that's gonna cost some money. Can I get an amen? You had another kid, that's gonna cost even more money. There's a, you, you moved into a new place and the utility bills are higher. Okay, you gotta up that budget, right? There are things that are needed. So we'll look at that first. And then before we adjust our standard of living, we address our standard of giving. That's how we do it. Because we're like, man, we, we go to a church that gives 50% away. We kind of want to be in the same journey personally as a family. Like we've, we've got generosity goals in our adventure with Jesus. We want to follow him in some of these things. And so we try to look at our personal finances in the same way. Band, you guys can come up. I'm about to close and, and we'll sing a chorus. I want us to actually respond in song to this. But I almost missed so much of what's happening in this passage because it directly challenges me. I'm reading through this thing and, and when I first read it, I was like, man, I read it through and I was like, oh yeah, I've heard this before. And, and then I kind of got stuck and like, well, why does Jesus talk about greed? That sounds so random. I guess he had like another thing on his mind. And, and, and then I looked through the whole chapter. I'm like, oh, the entire chapter, Jesus is talking about eternal perspectives and, and not just setting your mind on earthly stuff. And, and I realized with this man, I was like, man, this guy totally missed it. And I'm preaching with passion because so often I am that guy. Swap the term greedy for a second. Who wants to be that? Like, who, who, no one wants to be greedy. So let, let's swap the term greedy and let's swap it out for this. I am the guy who so often is in danger of missing what matters most. This man, I mean, think about it. This man, thousands upon thousands of people is what scripture tells us. He is close enough that Jesus can actually hear him. He is sitting, I mean, Jesus is pouring out billions of dollars worth of wisdom out of his mouth, and all this guy can get his mind on is the four-shekel figure inheritance that his brother has. Right? I'm like, Lord, that's me. So often, I miss it. And I want to go here pastorally because I need you to understand there is a more drive. Why, why do you think we go in this direction? Why do you think greed is such a silent killer? Because we all feel it. There is this more drive. There is this penchant for more. The problem is not the more drive. The problem is that greed gets it focused on the wrong stuff. And so as I start thinking about this, like, I'm like, Lord, recalibrate my heart. Like, Jesus, I want to love you more. I want to trust you more. I want to care for people more. I want to give more away and walk in generosity more. Lord, I want to move forward, but I want to be rich towards you, not just think about things on earth because those things matter, but they don't matter most. Because at the end of the day, it's all about Jesus. At the end of the day, when it comes to our stuff and our treasure and our talent and what we have, it's all about Jesus. 
You think back to the Live Green series where we talked about the vision here at Greenhouse to be disciples of Jesus, passionate followers of Jesus. We're gonna get to worship. It's worship and mission and community. We're gonna get to worship for all eternity. Zach and IG are amazing. It's gonna sound even better than that. We're gonna have the best worship ever. We talk about community. We're gonna be in community with the people of God in heaven for all eternity. It's like forced fellowship. You're there whether you want to or not, and it's gonna be amazing. But this is our only shot. This is our one shot to use the wealth and resources that he has given us to lay up treasure in heaven, to be rich toward God. This is our only moment. We're gonna get to heaven. And Jesus says, he's like, you're not gonna be able to use any of that stuff anymore. So while I'm on this earth, I'm like, God, pour me out. Use me, Lord. If you've given me influence, I wanna use it. If you've given me time, I wanna use it. If you've given me talents, I wanna use it. If you've given me money, I wanna use it for your glory because I only get one shot in this life to respond back in extravagant generosity with our stuff to the extravagant generosity we've experienced through the gospel in our lives. I think about where it says in heaven that he's gonna wipe every tear from their eyes. I'm like, but you're in heaven. Why, why, why are people crying in heaven? Maybe it has to do with sorrows of this earth, but I don't want to sit up there looking at a bank account that was very full when I left earth and see all of the opportunities that God had for me when I used to live on earth with tears. I'm like, Lord, I, I, pour me out now. Lead me to the life that's truly life now. Show me what you want me to do now. This week, you might need to get with your spouse and say, all right, babe, let's start praying and fasting about what we need to do with our generosity goals as a family. You might need to get with your roommates and say, all right, guys, we know that we got that person in microchurch who's in a tough spot this semester and COVID hit their family hard. Let's sit down and we're gonna pray and fast. Lord, what do you want us to do with our financial aid? We're gonna do Moe's and Chipotle anyways. Not like we're gonna spend it on only books. Lord, what do you want us to do now? I am praying that we would have hearts for God's kingdom through our stuff that's really his anyways. So many needs in our world, brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, church family in Haiti, faith family and and, and situations right here in South Florida. And so here's how I want us to close. I'd like us to stand to our feet and we're gonna sing. And if you remember from two weeks ago, I. I used an operating metaphor when we talked about pride and humility, and we said pride kind of approaches life fists up like this. Remember, kind of on the defensive, and and humility, in contrast, it, it sort of approaches life palms open. Lord, whatever you want to put in my hands, put it in. Whatever you want to take out of my hands, take out. I'm yours. I'm open. Here, here's how I would like us to respond. When we're gonna sing this song, and it's just about surrender. When you get to a point where you're like Jesus. With my spiritual life, I've been like this, but with my actual life, with my time, with my money, with my stuff, I've been much more like this. When you get to a point where in your heart, you're like, Lord, I'm open. I just want you to release your hands in this posture as a symbol, as a symbol. Like Jesus, yeah, I'm reminded, I get it. You brought me back to this point. Lord, my life is yours. My stuff is yours. My time is yours. My treasure is yours. My talents are yours. I want us to literally do that. Whenever in the song, maybe you never get there and you're like, man, I, I need to get home and pray because I'm not, I'm not there, that's fine. But whenever you genuinely get there, I want you to respond open-handed in that posture before God, saying, Lord, re- remove greed from my heart. I surrender, help me walk in generosity. 
because it's who you are and it's how we thrive. We're gonna sing this chorus and then I'll come back up and I'll give us an opportunity to, to receive some prayer. Let's sing it together. another layer to the onion. You said it, Jesus. Where, where our treasure is, there our hearts are also. It's, it's not about stuff. You don't need stuff. But you want our hearts. And what we do with stuff is like a steering wheel for the soul. Lord, we want our stuff to be in your hands. We surrender. I can get a few of our pair partners up here to line the front. Just as we were singing, had a sense that uh, there's, there's a lot that God can do with an open hand. And I think the Lord wants to do more than just generosity of, of finances and stuff. If, if you have a prayer need and you've gotten to a posture of surrender, I think the Lord wants to, wants to maybe take out some things that have been crippling you and harming you and maybe put in some things for your flourishing. And so as I'm going to close us and dismiss us, but you're welcome to come forward. We would love to pray with you. We've got some of our prayer partners up here, and we'd love to pray with you and encourage you in your 
faith journey. We, we have a few people that, that just pray sort of trusted intercessors during the service. And so a specific name popped up. So uh, Jake was the name. If there's a Jake in here or maybe watching online and you felt stuck, uh, I think God wants to do some things to set you free. And so I'd encourage you to respond. You're like, who told them? I have no idea. I don't know who you are, but God does and he loves you. So, so church, pray the Lord would bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lift up his countenance upon you and give you shalom, shalom, perfect peace, wholeness, and wellness in every part of your being. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you, church. Love you guys. If you need prayer, yeah. You're welcome to come forward. Otherwise, we'll see you in microchurches, and we'll see you back this week. 